Today's episode of The Rewatchables is brought to you by State Farm. Around here, we love talking about movies that we watch, rewatch, and watch again because they're just that good. It's the thoughtful details, the little things other movies don't have that keep us coming back. Here's the deal. When it comes to insurance, we can't get enough of State Farm. They have all the details we appreciate. They make insurance easy. You can monitor your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim through their app, which was awarded Best Insurance Mobile App 2019. And thanks to their network of 19,000 agents, you'll have someone local to walk you through options and help you choose a policy that meets your individual needs versus cookie-cutter coverage. Best of all, they give it to you straight. No gimmicks, no games, just guidance you can count on. It is a no-brainer. Go out and get the insurance you deserve. Get State Farm like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. We're also brought to you by the ringer.com and the Ringer Podcast Network, where we launched a new podcast. Uh, I think we've only done four at this point. Higher Learning, Van Lathan, Rachel Lindsay, an essential podcast, especially right now. This podcast that you're about to listen to, we actually taped a couple weeks ago because we had Judd Apatow for I don't know, half an afternoon. So we did a rewatchables with them and then we taped something for the BS podcast as well. That's running later in the week. It's Say Anything. It is a movie that uh, I I said to him, pick any movie, whatever you want, let's do rewatchables. So that is what is happening right now. I gave her my heart and she gave me a pen. Say Anything, coming up next. I'm going to take out Diane Court. Court doesn't go out. She's a brain trapped in the body of a game show hostess. We don't want to see you get hurt. I want to get hurt. Diane Court. Hello, Diane. Looking at you tonight. Hi, Lloyd Dalva, sir. Huh? I'm an athlete, so I rarely drink. Kurt kickboxing. You heard of kickboxing? Sport of the future? I can see by your face, no. My point is you can relax because your daughter will be safe with me for the next seven to eight hours, sir. John Cusack, Ioni Sky, Say Anything. All right, Chris Ryan is here. Special guest Judd Apatow is here. Wow, your first one. This is it. This is the exclamation point of your career, I feel like. I feel like this took way too long. It doesn't make sense that the invitation would come so late, but whatever. I feel bad. I was nervous. I never want to get rejected for the rewatchables. I always, I want to ease into it, but this worked out. And I asked you what movie you wanted to do. You sent me a couple and I, and Chris and I, Chris, you love this movie. I love this movie. I adore it. Yeah. So I saw it on the list. I was like, oh yeah, that's the one. Say Anything came out in 1989. You said- this was one of the movies that made you want to do this for a living. Why? I think it was the first time I saw a movie that really felt like it reflected my friend group. I felt that way when I saw Cameron Crowe's first movie, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I certainly related to the short man who worked at the movie theater. You know, sometimes you just see yourself on screen really clearly. <laughs> What's his name? Rat? What was his name? Yeah, Rat. <laughs> uh, and and then when I saw Say Anything, I, I, it seemed to to capture our sense of humor. And John Cusack was so great. And I, I loved the sure thing. And so I was, I was tracking my John Cusack pretty tightly at that point. I don't even know if I made the Cameron Crowe connection that this was the person that 
that wrote Pastimes at Ridgemont High. And now when I look back at my career, I'm very open about the fact that I just could not have stolen more from this movie. And in conscious and unconscious ways, when I rewatched it, I, I noticed imagery and behavior. And, uh, it's, it is completely shameless. And I, I, I have begged Cameron Crowe uh, for his forgiveness for many years. Yeah, but that's the thing with writers and with filmmakers and musicians. I, I think you become a product of the things you love the most when, when you were either growing up or when stuff starting to hit you the right way. So that makes sense to me. Chris, What is this a Cameron Crowe movie or a John Cusack movie? I think it's probably a Cameron Crowe movie. The reason why I say that, though, is because the characters in this movie are so indelible that I still think about them as Lloyd and Diane rather than Ioni Sky and John Cusack. And that was the big thing for me was, I think this movie came out, I was still, you know, I was still making my way through the bat mitzvah circuit. I hadn't quite graduated <laughs> to... Uh, high school relationships yet, but it was the first peak I had at that kind of world that you would have like a girlfriend, that that would be something that you would really pursue and that that was what it would be like. And yeah, like I think even though there's pretty much every single person in this movie went on to do really cool things afterwards, I think of, I think of it as Corey. I don't think of it as Lily Taylor. You know, I think of it as Joe. I don't think of it as Lauren Dean. So I think that these characters just took up they just occupied my my imagination for such a long time. They feel like they're they're real people to me. And then when you talk about the arc of high school movies, where and Fast Times is almost like an outlier. I don't even know if you can compare that to anything. But you have that whole stretch of Sixteen Candles and Breakfast Club and all the John Hughes movies and all the trying to get laid movies like Class and Losing It movies like that and it kind of crests with Can't Buy Me Love in 1987 where we've taken like rom-com in high school as far as it can go. And then it's kind of no man's land for a little bit. And this is like the first really well-crafted, relatively modern high school movie. It's 31 years old. It, it Did it feel old to you watching it, Judd? I didn't at all. I feel like it's very timeless. Obviously, there's jokes in it that are of the time. There's that funny shot in the opening scene when she's doing the graduation speech where they cut to the crowd and all of the parents have the largest video recorders you've yeah, ever yeah. seen. And then they put a really loud sound effect, like they're all noisy. But for the most part, other than the, the scene in the telephone booth, uh, there's not much that ages in the movie. And I also thought, the costumes held up pretty well too. Sometimes you see movies from other eras, and you know there's some 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 collars that throw you, but right. it it held that part held up really well. And I think the behavior is so universal. You know the way they talked was very uh, influential for me because people were funny, but it was completely grounded. You know the movie was produced by James Brooks and Polly Platt, and this. Was, you know, a few years after Terms of Endearment and Broadcast News. So you, you felt the, the process of a lot of really smart people uh, being part of the collaboration with Cameron Crowe on the first movie he, he directed. And I read somewhere that for a while, Lawrence Kasdan was circling directing this movie yeah. and that he realized that it seemed so personal to Cameron Crowe that he should push for him to do it, which which makes perfect sense. Also, because he's one of the great guys of all time, Lawrence Kasdan. Well, 
And Crow's only like 32 at this point. It's interesting though. They bring in, so Jim Brooks is basically the the fairy godfather of this movie. He's also at a, you know, a monster point of his career. It's just like everything he's doing. We we did broadcast news as a rewatchable a while ago. The guy's just on the all-time hot streak and he's not even done yet because like the Simpsons is just about to happen and all these things. But it's funny, you at, you know, the last, I would, I don't know how many years, maybe 12 to 15, you, you would be brought into some of these, you would oversee these movies kind of as the Jim Brooks figure, right? Like what are the qualifications when you do something like that? When you're there just to, to help the filmmaker and, and nudge them in the right ways, but not overpower them. You know, it's a very delicate process. I remember when I first met Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson, they were working with James Brooks, uh, who was a producer on Bottle Rocket. And that was my dream to get James Brooks to give me notes and and help me figure out how to do this. I, I think a lot of it is, can you find a way to help people, give them the knowledge you have, but be very aware of what they want to say and how they want to say it and not screw them up like can you help them without knocking them off the track they should be on and sometimes people are way off and so when you make a suggestion it's a gigantic suggestion that changes everything about what they want to do and if they indicate that that doesn't feel right to them you have to say okay maybe not that and sometimes people are very close and and there's subtle you know subtle uh you know, nudging in certain directions. I remember when we worked on The Big Sick and I was doing that for Kamal and Emily, it was a real discussion of what is his spirituality? Does he believe in God? And he he did want to talk about how it's different for a young person than uh, immigrant parents who, who, you know, see their religion uh, very different. And... Camille wasn't sure how to address that, but I had that instinct. I think you have to say something. I think you have to address it directly. I, 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 as a reader, I want to know if he believes in God. I want to know where he stands with his religion because there were these great scenes where he would go downstairs to pray, but really he would just play video games. Right. And I thought, well, that's a pretty modern take on all of this. But I did want to know, what, what does he believe? And at some point, Camille and Emily came up with the idea that he would say, you know what, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to figure it out. And that seemed to be all you needed was the idea that maybe his parents were pressuring him so much that they weren't letting him come to, come to himself in his own way, in his own time. You know, you have to find your faith uh, independently. Some people can't make you have faith. So part right. of my producing is just to look for things that are not fully developed yet and for certain conversations. Sometimes I might have the idea that helps fix it, but most of the time I'm just pushing them to answer a question that hasn't been answered yet. For instance, when I did The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Gary Shanling was always saying, you know, you have to show them have sex. And I'm like, what? And he's like, you have to show them have sex because that's how you know that his sex is better than all his goofy friend's sex because he's in love. They're not in love. And that's the point of your movie, that he finds love. And then you know that because the sex is great. And I didn't know how to show that. And it was very frustrating. But as a mentor, he kept saying that to me. And then one day, I I mentioned it again to Carell. And he said, well, maybe I just break out in song. 
And I was like, yeah, maybe you just start singing like, let the sunshine in from hair or something. But it would have happened, it have happened without a, a mentor. He wasn't the producer, but I mean, for me, he was always kind of the producer, Shandling. So I only know, I only know what that's like to be the mentor, like from documentaries I've done. And there's this crucial point in the documentary when if they're doing it correctly, the director is really embedded in it and it's just been in the weeds for a while and they become pretty fragile. And that's where if you have notes coming from seven different directions and you don't have a good process in place that's funneling through one person and you hit that person when they're in that specific point of fragility and you're like, change this, change that, do this. Like they'll like unravel. And, and there's this one moment when it's super delicate. What's that process like when you're making a movie, when you're, cause you've been on both ends of it. You've been the guy in the weeds finishing the movie and you've also been the mentor person. You have to be very, very sensitive and you can't be a control freak and you can't be doing it for your own ego or for your own career. You, you have to think, I'm here to assist these people to get to something. And you have to remind yourself what you would want. And sometimes it just doesn't work. And the whole project does crash and burn. And I'd go as far to say most of the time it doesn't work. And most of the time the movie isn't made because yeah. the chemistry isn't right or they can't crack their story or I'm not smart enough to help them crack their story. But there's definitely those moments where you, you can feel, oh, these people want to kill me. They hate <laughs> me right now. And I've, I've worked with people where I gave them a set of notes and they never talked to me ever. <laughs> Not even off of a fight, just off of wanting to They're run just out. away. And I understand that because sometimes you feel like, this is personal, get out of my face. And other people really engage the process and they like it. Uh, you know, Amy Schumer was like that. Camille and Emily were like that. Pete Davidson was like that. We were writing together, me and Pete. Uh, and when you are in sync, it's the best thing ever. But right. sometimes it is, it is tough, and I have to make a decision how hard do I want to go at them if I feel like they're going in the wrong direction. And there have been times where I've said, you know what, I, I'm gonna, I'll go with their choice. I totally disagree, but I'm going to go with them. And Sometimes they were proven correct, and sometimes the movie was terrible. <laughs> and I, I've had both of, both of those things happen. You know, I've been wrong. You know, I, I've actually seen old scripts of movies I've produced with my notes in the margins, and I've gone back and read the notes, and there might be an X through an entire scene, and I think, wow, they shot that scene, and that's everyone's favorite scene. <laughs> I was telling right. you to get rid of it. <laughs> so you're never perfect. But it is fun when it's working. It worked great with Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor. We we oh, had a yeah. great time for seven years, really enjoying that process wall to wall. Chris, you've you've edited a lot of writers over the years. The good news is writers aren't sensitive and don't take stuff personally <laughs> at all on the internet. So you never had to worry about any of this. They just take your notes. I obviously don't have any experience with like the notes process when it comes to a, a movie, but it is Say Anything such an interesting example of, I think if I remember correctly, the germ of the idea is Brooks's, right? Like he saw a yeah. father and a daughter walking across the street and then said to himself, what would happen if that the father was a criminal? And it just shows, you know, 
how contagious a good idea can be in a lot of ways. And and it's so kind of generous of him to think think of that and then put it in Cameron Crowe's hands and work on it with him for the over the years. And it, it feels like such a scrutinized, like interrogated story. That's the thing I love about it the most is that even if you at certain points in your life after like your 30th viewing of this movie are like, I can do without the IRS subplot. Yes. You know, yeah. <laughs> You still have to respect how much tension the IRS subplot brings to the surface. And that's and that's the genius of the movie. As yeah. a young person, I didn't understand what the IRS subplot was about. Uh, it wasn't the part of the movie that I was attracted to. To me, it was all about falling in love. I loved the idea that John Cusack was charming and funny and kind of weird and lost. And he just seemed like the type of character I had never seen on screen before. And in watching it again, I thought, how do they invent this guy? It's such a mix of, of different personality quirks. You know, he's both smart, maybe not that smart. He, he does, you know, he's, a, I guess, like an army brat of some kind. He keeps talking about how kickboxing is a sport of the future. <laughs> and it, it's meant to be a joke in the movie. But you know what? He was right. Yeah. It was the sport of the future. He's vindicated. He, he, Maybe he's Dana White or something. Right. Uh, he, he, he's a billionaire right now. And I thought, wow, I've just never seen this guy before. And you have this you know, perfect, smart, beautiful girl. That was the type of girl I was always in love with. It was exactly the definition of, of who I would fall in love with. And just seeing this goofy guy try to be charming, try to win her over by being a good guy, that that was important to him to be a good guy really connected for me. Then when I got older and became a father, when I watch that now, you know, all the issues with the dad, wanting her to do well, wanting to be able to take care of her, losing his sense of what's right and wrong and, and how complicated it gets with their relationship. You know, now that really moves me and I get what that is because as a parent, you don't know if you're, screwing up and you you're terrified of losing their belief in you so it's really heartbreaking i remember always being heartbroken by that scene where his credit card is rejected at yeah. the luggage store yeah. She's the one behind the counter is flirting with him and then as soon as the card isn't working he just goes white and he's so humiliated and he gets in the bathtub and just sits there depressed and I think we all now, when we get depressed, we go right into the tub because of that. He invented it. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, the thing about this movie being 31 years old and when I saw it, which was right after I had left high school. So I'm like 19 or 20. I don't remember. And watching it through Lloyd's eyes and you're just rooting for Lloyd. You're rooting for him to get the girl and, and you're rooting for her to overlook the fact that he really doesn't have any ambition. He's just a good guy. But that now that I'm old and now that I have a daughter who's 15 and I'm watching this and now I'm kind of seeing it halfway through the dad side and be like, yeah, what the fuck? This guy wants to be a kickboxer? I definitely would want this person to date my daughter for too long. And it, it's just funny how it flips. Marketing. Yeah. Why can't you be in marketing? He's totally wrong. He should be marketing. Yeah. Bill, I'm wondering how much runway a guy who comes to your house and says he doesn't want to buy or sell anything or sell anything that's been processed or yeah, process know. anything that's been bought or sold. Like how, how much time you give that guy on stage before you, you yank him oh, off? Man. 
Well, Jed, Jed has two daughters older than mine, so he knows that feeling of the guy coming over, which I've only had limited experience with because my daughter's only had one boyfriend, but that it catches it so perfectly when Lloyd comes in and he's all like bravado, <laughs> hey, how you doing? And then it's just like this pause for five seconds and it's kind of like, is she coming out? Do we have to keep talking now? <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's so also good. nothing worse than a guy saying all he wants to do is take good care of <laughs> yeah, seriously. Uh, quick background on Cameron Crowe, just for the people listening. So he's this Rolling Stone writer in the 70s, precocious, all immortalized and almost famous, um, and then goes back to high school for Fast Times Ridgemont High, which becomes a script. He does not direct that. He actually goes back to high school. He literally goes back this. to high school. It, it was a book, and yeah. I, don't know if he, I don't know if he did half a year or a whole year. And wrote a book based on what he saw in high school. I mean, when you look at it now, that's criminal. Oh yeah, he'd go to jail. <laughs> By the way, that book—that book's like impossible to find. It's like a very hard. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of copies of it out there. But anyway, he has. So he has some cachet. I'm just like going in the late '80s. There, it's like, oh, Cameron Crowe. He wrote Fast Times. I like that guy. Oh, James Brooks. He produced this. Why well, trust him? And then we have to have the Cusack conversation, you know, from the short thing on, which was 1985. He's just in all of these movies. He's in Better Off Dead and One Crazy Summer. He's, uh, I forget, was he Shoeless Joe Jackson? And no, he was the third baseman in Eight Men Out. So he, hey, he's- John Sales, yeah. Yeah, he's doing, he's doing well. We like him. He has the small part in Stand By Me. So, yeah, he's the older brother. He's also going way back. He was in class. That was his first movie, but he's- been there for six, seven years. I think his approval rating was really high. The only one who didn't really have, uh, we didn't have a background with was Ioni Sky. She'd only been in a couple things, but I just better remember being dead. excited. You're not talking about Better Off Dead. And Better Off Dead. Yeah, that was the other one. Yeah. And I know he was in one with Stiller. And I don't know if it was Better Off Dead or there's... Uh... There was Tapeheads was in there too at some point. Tapeheads is fantastic. Yeah. People yeah. don't talk about Tapeheads enough with him and Tim Robbins. Don't get me started on the greatness of Tapeheads. And my friends... Uh, Steve Higgins and Dave Higgins and maybe Dave Allen, who were called Don't Quit Your Day Job back then. Mm. Uh, now Steve Higgins is, you know, the producer of Saturday Night Live and Dave Higgins has been on everything. And Gruber was Mr. Rosso and Freaks and Geeks. But they were in tape heads. And when I was really right. young and friends with them, I couldn't believe anyone could be in a movie. <laughs> right. And they were in tape heads. Uh, they were, they were, that was incredible. Cusack, after this movie, he's, I feel like he's an A-lister after this, or at least like he's, people know him. He's on the way up. He beats out, not step on casting what ifs, beats out Christian Slater for this role. Chris, what's Christian Slater like and say anything? I think he's too close to the pump up the volume Heather's like James Dean character. It's hard for me to imagine him capturing the really quick twitch neurosis that Cusack has in this movie because Slater is just kind of so effortlessly cool at this time. Yeah. And Robert Downey Jr. turned this down. Yeah. That's pretty wild. Robert Downey Jr. turned it down. And I think that I, the first time I saw John Cusack was in 16 Candles as one of the nerds. Right. Yeah. Right. This is about as long of a stretch somebody has had from appearances in high school movies. You go from 83 to 89. That's your, like six and a half years because he becomes an adult in other movies. And now he's circling back. He's back in high school. But you know, the coolest thing about this is that if you look at all of these movies together, 
all the high school movies or that those teen movies that he did, it kind of feels like a generation of people like sort of aged with him and then graduated yeah. with say anything. And this is this is our graduation too. It's like we're kind of getting into the adult world. We're leaving the 80s behind and kind of, you know, grunge is about to happen. We're going towards the 90s in Seattle. And it, it does it does feel like there is an arc to his career and there was an arc to the people watching those movies. I related to him even when he then when he did the grifters. I, that's when I was going through my grifting period. Yeah, of you, course. <laughs> when I was doing my long cons. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, I felt the same way, Chris. I felt like this is the graduation movie of the 80s movies. I think that's a good way to put it. Because then you go into the 90s and it starts getting weird. And then there's a big comeback in the late 90s where they start making the same type of movies we made in the 80s. But, you know, that's when we enter the 10 Things I Hate About You and um, what's the one with Jennifer Love Hewitt? The the last night of high school. We haven't done it on Can't Hardly Wait. Can't Hardly Wait. Yeah, you have all those movies and and it just kind of goes from there. Um, well, he was very symbolic of a certain kind of guy. You know, like when I went to high school, I wasn't an athlete, I wasn't a super nerd. There were those people who were right in the middle. And yeah. he always felt like one of those people to me. Everyone kind of liked him. And, you know, he wasn't going to be the quarterback. He wasn't going to be on the debate team. Just, you know, he was in his own space. And I felt that the same thing uh, when I saw The Sure Thing with John Cusack. And that was, you know, you really could live vicariously through him because for me, I thought, well, I'm, I'm not really a, attractive or unattractive. I'm kind of in the middle and Cusack's much more attractive than me, but it was always playing like a guy that no one would really go like hubba hubba about. Right. And it was always about him using his humor and his charm to get certain people, women to like him. And that was, uh, you know, somebody that we would all look up to who, who lived in the, in that purgatory. Well, Cameron Crowe credits. We, we always, at the beginning of the rewatchables, before we do the categories, we always find out what Roger Ebert's take of the movie was. Sometimes it's, <laughs> sometimes it's horrific. Sometimes it's dead on. Cameron he was not Crow, a big fan of mine from many a film. Oh, he's, he has a lot of misses. Cameron Crowe credits the enthusiastic review on Siskel and Ebert as at least partially saving the movie at the box office. Ebert wrote one of the best films of the year a film that is really about something that cares deeply about the issues it contains. And yet it also works wonderfully as a funny, warm-hearted romantic comedy. Not bad, not bad from Raj. Finally. Yeah. Better, better than he gave me on heavyweights. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, he killed you on heavyweights. He killed me on heavyweights. He killed me on the cable guy. And I always remember Siskel loved the cable guy and I framed it. And I was like, who needs Ebert? I got Siskel. <laughs> well, we had, what was the Tom? Was it Tommy Boy the one we did recently? That was one of Ebert's most hated movies of 1995. He just did hated Chris Farley in it. Didn't get it. Yeah, there was something about comedy that he missed. But this was was that uh, of- was that you, Chris, who, who who was talking about how the reviewers don't understand the purpose of those movies? Were you on the Tommy Boy? That was Sean, probably. That was Sean. Yeah, yeah. I thought that he was very eloquent about that. Reviewers sometimes don't understand why those movies are made, how they're made, their purpose, you know, the simplicity of storytelling sometimes, or even the goofiness of the story. You know, they're looking for, you know, the hours 
but the people aren't trying to make the hours. They're trying to make Tommy Boy. Yeah. And my, my buddy Fred Wolf wrote that movie, and Pete Siegel was the director. And they, they were doing a lot of writing, like on the set, fixing it. But there's something about that last minute fix that sometimes leads to the funniest, most memorable things you've ever seen. And I think all of us in comedy, we always feel like sometimes critics don't understand what we're even trying to do. Well, you see that with the Oscars too, right? I mean, think about some of the best, most successful movies ever just get completely ignored year after year at the Oscars. This is Well, I don't think that there's a high value put on silly yeah. for a lot of people. Uh, you know, for a deer in the car. Uh, <laughs> but to me, what's better than a deer in the car? There's so many ways right. to make people cry, but how many people can think of a genius way to get a deer in a car and be hilarious or, you know, uh, put on a small jacket? Uh, I mean, there is an art to that that is dismissed because when it works, it seems kind of effortless off of the top of your head. But you know, it's really hard to think of a great joke. It's really hard to tear down the house. Well, yeah, I think, you know, they don't have the Oscars, but they have the rewatchables for some of these movies. That be, <laughs> that became the Oscar. When yes. <laughs> when we deem your movie rewatchable yeah. worthy, it's it kind of replaces it, I think. I'll tell you something ways. that applies here, which is I uh, was having a lunch, which I uh, treasured that I was able to have lunch with Mike Nichols a few times. Uh, and... He said, you know, comedies don't get any awards, but that's okay because people watch those movies over and over and over again. So it's true. That's really the, the, the reward of it is that they're just seen. I mean, people will watch Tommy Boy more than they will watch Schindler's List. Or Million Dollar Baby is another good example. That movie won like seven Oscars or whatever, and it's like nobody would ever want to watch it a second time, but Tommy Boy is going to live on for eternity. It is funny how this stuff gets treated. Let's take a break to talk about Roman. If you've been dealing with acne, redness, dark spots, or wrinkles, finding treatment that works can be complicated. You need skincare that actually performs, but getting started can be overwhelming, thankfully. There's a solution. Roman makes it convenient to get customized prescription skincare that really performs. Grab your phone or computer, complete a free online consultation. You'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. If appropriate, a doctor will prescribe a custom blended treatment based on your skin type and priorities. You'll receive your custom skincare treatment with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor if you need to make a change to your treatment or have any questions. With Roman, no commitments. You can cancel anytime. In celebration of Men's Health Month, Roman offering $20 off any new treatment during the month of June. Oh yeah, go to GetRoman.com slash rewatch for $20 off any new treatment and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash rewatch. Eligibility requirements and additional terms apply. Most rewatchable scene. By the way, I'm going to rip through all my rewatchable scenes. And if I left anything out, chime in at the end. First one, Diane finally calls Lloyd back. Now, I could technically go opening credits for most rewatchable scene, which we've done from time to time, when him telling his friends, I'm going to call her. So I'll yeah. let you guys decide. I would do that, yeah. You'd put that, add that one up? Okay. Absolutely. 
Diane Court doesn't go out with guys like you. She's a brain. Trapped in the body of a game show hostess. Diane Court does not realize how good looking she is. This sounds great to me, man. I'm gonna call her. That's what's cool about her. Brains stay with brains. The bomb could go off and their mutant genes would form the same cliques. I wouldn't get my hopes up, Lloyd. I'm sorry. It's just you're a really nice guy and we don't want to see you get hurt. I want to get hurt. I like it. It's just such a weird way to start a movie. And and I got to be honest, in 1989, there weren't a lot of movies where it's like the protagonist is like, here are my three female friends that I'm going to bounce this idea off of. It, this might have actually been the first movie that even played that card. Not only that, they actually seem like friends. Yeah. And he lays out the entire movie in that scene. It's like, you know exactly who Lloyd is. You know exactly what he wants. And you know exactly what he's going to do to get it. And they and they set up the stakes of the movie so well in that in that cold open. All right, so we got that. And Pamela Adelon. Yep. Unbelievable. Yeah. Right? <laughs> had had no idea for for until I did the research for this movie. It just never clicked with me for some reason that she's <laughs> in that. Crazy. That's right. Yeah, so she's one of the three friends if you're listening. That was the, I mean that's an amazing amazing scene and it's also you know them them question you know, if he had a shot with her, they all, you know, describe her. And, yeah. and that was, you know, such a great idea for a character. You know, the girl who is gorgeous, but really obsessed with schoolwork, who didn't hang out with anybody the whole time. And that, that would be the goal. Could I be the, the person that she would talk to? Right. She hasn't talked to anybody. And she has a great speech in the opening of the movie, The Great Graduation speech and her joke bombs and only her dad laughed <laughs> yeah and and then uh, at the end she just says i'm afraid of the of the future and it's just a great great moment are you asking me what my favorite scene no, is I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go i'm gonna rip through these oh you're doing next all one of them. no i got i got eight um okay. diane calls lloyd back and yeah. he has to scramble, go into the bathroom, and he's trying to get her to do a date. And she can't. She's, Great landline anxiety. Oh, yeah. She's busy. You're busy. Are you monumentally busy? And just that whole. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, by the end, she's going to the party and his reaction after and all that stuff. Really great. Are you busy on Saturday? Saturday, I have some things to do around the house. So you're, so you're monumentally busy? Well, not monumentally. What about tonight, then? Can you go to that party for Lears? Mm. Look, Dan, I'm sorry, but I can't allow you to leave the country without attending the Lears graduation event. This gentleman is, is 22, and, and, and he comes out of hiding like once a year for this occasion. And he, and he, and he dresses up as the lakeside rooster, and he, and he makes this drink called the Purple Passion. Actually, I think that... Uh... You know, and you're not in England yet. You know that. I have um. to say that I stole... Let's call it an homage so it feels less like stealing... In the forty-year-old virgin, with Catherine Keener, and 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 he's in the bathroom flipping out. <laughs> oh, that is a straight-on homage slash theft. Excellent. Well, just so you know, forty-year-old virgin is on the rewatchable schedule because you got a fifteenth anniversary coming up. I'm. As you can tell from my beard that that many years have passed. <laughs> uh, the next scene. I'm just going to tell you guys now is my favorite scene in the movie. The, uh, the party. I'm just calling the scene the party, <laughs> even though there's seven scenes within the party. I had just never seen a movie, a, a scene like this in a movie before. Somebody that accurately 
hammered home what a party was actually like, how it'd be weird, how you'd have different rooms. You'd have the fucking Lily Taylor room where she's just singing weird songs about Joe. And you have the laundry room where there's beer and people are probably hooking up in there and you have outdoors and you have a guy dressed up like a fucking bird. And Who's Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz. <laughs> you have Key Man. And just all of it is just, even 31 years later, I was shocked by how good is this. Chris, is this your, is this the, the, the founding father of party scenes in your opinion? It's so dead perfect. Like even, even uh, like the, the flourishes, like, when Piven runs up to him and demands his keys and he's like, you must chill. (laughs) You know, it's just like, they they feel like they actually did go to high school together. That's the crazy thing is that when he walks in and everybody's kind of checking her out and seeing that she's with Lloyd and they can't believe it. And they've got their, they've got their yearbooks there. But yeah, I mean, I can't tell if this movie was the perfect encapsulation of what high school parties were like, or it invented high school parties. And we just had parties like that afterwards. Uh, For years, I used to just go, Louis Dabber, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've you've had been involved in different movies that use settings like this, it's where so hard. there's there's a hundred people in it, and people are going through different rooms. And it's funny because he basically steals from himself when he has the almost famous scene, Cameron Crowe, when Billy Crudup's character decides to go to party in Kansas and ends up at that high school party in the 70s house and (laughs) ends up jumping off the roof. But it's got to be so hard to navigate that correctly, right? Where you're kind of navigating around a party so it feels like a party. It's so hard because if you have extras, atmosphere, you know, you have people there who, you know, they're not necessarily going to give you the best performance. So you're very nervous as you shoot your your leads walking past people that might be doing something great, but also might just be staring directly in the camera. And right. so you have a, that's the thing that always makes me afraid about having 25 people in the background is, what are they doing? Do they look fake? Are they talking in a way that looks fake? Is there any way to capture the relaxed behavior of a bunch of uh, you know 17 and 18-year-olds without it seeming so phony? The clothes can be so wrong. The song at the party can be so wrong. Uh, it's really tricky. We did a scene like that in Freaks and Geeks where uh, they replaced the, the geeks replaced the keg with a keg of near beer. And then at the party, everyone acts drunk and they know that no one is drunk. <laughs> right. And, and uh, terrified the whole time that it wouldn't look like a real party. So that is a fantastic one. And then there's the, the kid that they drive home Mike Cameron, yeah, it's a great, uh, yeah, great little cherry on the Sunday of that whole thing. <laughs> They're driving for like three hours, and then the uh, the you know, there's the great moment where she sings all the songs about Joe. That'll never be me. That'll never be me. That'll never be never be me. No. And I don't know if I'd ever seen anything that funny and specific and warm and inventive before in a movie about people who were a couple of years younger than me. It, it, you just remembered that bit for the rest of your life. And Lily yeah, let's talk so about, great. let's talk about Joe lies a little bit. Cause this is when it <laughs> unfolds. Now they set it up earlier because she's going to the party. The mom's like, don't, don't talk to Joe or whatever. So it's just kind of, it's just like kind of sprinkled in there and you're, you don't know what it means. And then it manifests itself. 
I think that's some of the funniest shit that's ever been in a high school movie. The the her relationship with Joe. It's that'll never be me. That'll <laughs> never be me. <laughs> and he's like an idiot when when Cusack talks to him about it. Like, don't hurt her. He's like, no, I love her. I save all the tapes. You're going to yeah. do something one day. And you realize like she's just in love with the biggest moron, which is what high school is about, not realizing how terrible the person is that you like. And it's also like heartbreaking. Like you're aware, oh, this this probably consumed this girl for years. Uh, I, I, I love that detail. It might be one of the best parts about this movie that almost every character could support their own movie. Like I would watch the oh, Corey yeah. movie and they're written as that. Like Corey's backstory, Corey's like, like her personality and the way that she's kind of self-involved and her friends are like, you always, you always make it about Joe and yourself. Like it, that's its own movie. And you can see that in just that quick 35, 45 seconds of her singing to Joe and Joe sees her. Joe has such a great reappearance later in the movie. But yeah, I just thought like I that party reveals where you're like, oh man, every one of these people is so well thought out and and well drawn. And then he wants to have sex with her. Right. He asks her to have sex, and it's like it instantly frees her. Yeah. But she could blow him off. That's all she needed to hear. I it was really realistic for how 80s parties goes, as somebody who went to a few of them in my day, where you would just have these different rooms that different things were going on. And I'm not saying it's not like that. But it was really like you just kind of showed up at a party and you kind of drifted to wherever your area was and that was it. And if there was a basement, well, you go down there. Go ahead, Chris. No, the best part about the party too is that Lloyd and Diane split up as soon as they get there, which is what happens at parties, whether you were going on a date or not. Like you go in, I go to parties now with my wife and it's like, I'll see you in three hours. You right. know, yeah, you're, you're just not getting... just going to stay. You might try to kind of stand with your, your the people you came with for a little while to kind of get your bearings. But for the most part, you're like, yeah, I'll see you at the end of the night and we'll recap. That's the fun part. And there's subtle stuff going on too. Cause I think if you look at the high school party scenes in the eighties, it's always over the top. It's like long duck dong falling out of a yeah. tree and, um, you know, can't buy me love the girl. She's wearing the white link. Somebody throws wine on it and it's never realistic. This, even the little stuff, like she's singing those Joe songs and there's just two obviously stoned out of their mind kids just <laughs> staring at her. But they never, we never see them get stoned. They're just kind of like zoned out. <laughs> like it's like, like uh, Joni Mitchell singing to them or something. But, Little do those kids know that there will be a person at a party for the next six years of their life with a guitar. So they, right. they, they didn't need to pay attention <laughs> that time. Uh, all right. So that's one. Then we got, um, oh, I should mention the super bad party scene, I think is like this scene, almost like the on steroids, the, well, that was the scene where you know, Jonah Hill uh, dances with uh, Carla with uh, Carla Gallo <laughs> and gets a period blood stain <laughs> on his leg. And you know, we have been trying to get that movie made for so many years, and no one would make it. And I would yeah. always say to the guys, like, "You think it's the period blood thing? Do you think the second <laughs> they get to that page, it just reads so crazy?" And then when we shot the movie, I said to Matola, "You have to shoot some sort of bridge moment so that." If that is not funny, we can cut it out. Because if it doesn't work, it really will not right. work. Right. You, you can't a, get out of it. <laughs> that's an all or nothing thing. And then we showed it for the first time in Burbank, at the AMC in Burbank. And the place exploded. It was the best screening of any movie we ever worked on. 
Wow. And as a favor, the person who came and watched it was Cameron Crowe. Oh, man. And he went to the theater and he got to see that. And just as a friend, the best guy ever came to the, the super bad test screening. And it was pandemonium. But yeah, you do get really afraid with certain joke swings that if they don't work, they could sink the entire movie. Not just that moment, but you it could turns the audience against everyone. you. Yeah. I, I, and to this day, I still don't understand why it didn't turn the audience against the movie. <laughs> uh, well, it's producer Craig's number one uh, choice for a rewatchable, and we've been lording it over him almost yes. like the last <laughs> piece of cake or something. I don't know when we do it. We might never do it. We just kind of kind of keep it in the back pocket. Uh, more scenes, more rewatchable scenes. <laughs> we didn't even get to this one yet. Lloyd goes to dinner with with uh, Diane's family. This is the, I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything as a career. I thought about this quite a bit, sir. And I, I would have to say, considering what's waiting out there for me, I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything as a career. I don't want to sell anything bought or processed, or buy anything sold or processed, or process anything sold, bought, or processed, or repair anything sold, bought, or processed. You know, as a career, I don't want to do that. So uh, my father's in the army. He wants me to join but I can't work for that corporation. Um, so what I've been doing lately is kickboxing. Just the whole concept of, so Lloyd, where, what are you up to? And he's like, and he launches his speech and then he's like, I'm really into kickboxing. It's the sport of the future. <laughs> uh, oh, that's great. The uh, next one, Lloyd telling his friends, the female friends that they had sex and Lily Taylor doing that thing like, you're always going to have this. You, when you're 60, you'll be thinking about it. It'll be the only thing you think of. Not untrue, by the way, uh, but that one, really solid. All right, all right, all right, calm down. All right, calm down. Nothing's different. Lloyd, listen to me. Everything has changed. You've had sex. No matter what you might think, nothing will ever be the same between you two. You might be 60. You might be walking down the street, and you'll talk to her about something, whatever. But what you'll really be thinking is, we had sex. How about when she tells her dad she had sex? Uh, that's not one of my most rewatchable <laughs> scenes. That's <laughs> kind of my nightmare, actually. <laughs> when she tells John Mahoney, and John Mahoney's acting in the whole movie is off the charts. He's such a genius. But the look at his face, and, and she's, she's, she starts saying that, that John Cusack wants to have sex with her, and basically she says, you know, I, did, I decided not to. And then he's so relieved and she goes, but then I decided to do it. <laughs> right. Then I jumped him. <laughs> and I jumped him. And, uh, you know, it's, it's such a good, good scene. Yeah. She does the thing about, uh, you know, the guys, they get that look, they get the look in their eye. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Lloyd goes to see his guy friends after he gets dumped. Iconic. Uh, it's, it's his parody of, I think, toxic masculinity, basically, but the bitches, man, and spend your money and they tell your friends everything. And they're just like spouting out these dumbass cliches. It's hilarious. I don't know if there's a line in American movie history that quite captures the relationship people have to their piece of shit high school car the way... <laughs> When Joe goes, dist in the Malibu. <laughs> oh, man. Dist in the oh, Malibu. Oh, heinous. And it's your castle, man. Golly. Man, you never had a chance with a girl like that. I like immediately think of my my uh, my mom's <laughs> Toyota Corolla silver hatchback that I called the silver bullet. 
and yeah. it, the starter didn't work. The like there was cat hair in it. The air conditioner smelled weird. I loved that car so much. That's your castle, man. Yeah. Like I lo- <laughs> loved it. <laughs> the funny thing about the movie is, uh, you know, it's you know, it's very you know pro women. It, it it's hilariously aware of how lame and awful young men can be. And I think on some level, one thing I took from it unconsciously is just how hilariously awful your friend group can be. So if you see Knocked Up and Seth is hanging with all his friends and they're trying to start a website that just shows you the naked scenes in commercial movies. <laughs> right. Yes. And they're just all talking and fantasizing about it and, and, and pitching around. And they're just such idiots. And part of the movie is you gotta out. You, you have to outgrow these people. You need to like go to the next place. And a lot of times, these people will not be with you <laughs> when you finally grow up. That's what I always thought about the the gas and sip scene. Yeah, you know, he's trying so hard to get good advice from his friends, and he gets the worst advice in the world. You know, you find someone that looks just like her, and then you <laughs> right. have sex with her, <laughs> and. That I, I'm sure somewhere programmed my head. You know that's Romany Malco in the Forty Year Old Virgin. Just the, the the friends with the worst advice that you need to get away from. Well, not to spoil your new movie, but because it's an opening scene. But Pete's friends in the uh, in your new movie aren't exactly like the greatest crew. You mean my new movie, The King of Staten Island, coming to VOD on yeah. June twelfth? How is that generic break? But yeah, I would say that fr- that friend crew isn't fantastic. <laughs> no, and in this the new movie is a little more serious. It's a comedy, but it takes its drama much more seriously. And you really feel like with this, you know, a similar kind of friend group. These are the friend group. This is the friend group that is going to take you to hell. Like you're right, going to your jail life. if you don't get away from these guys. Yes. Yeah. Um, two more scenes: the boombox scene, which I want to come back to. Um, Diane confronts her dad, not necessarily rewatchable. Oh, cool. This scene is on, but it's just a really good scene. He said, she sends Cusack first. He talks to her. John Mahoney's like so mad. It's Lloyd as the representative and not his daughter. And then she finally shows up. I and think then, that is an incredible scene. The scene yeah. in the prison. I, upon rewatching it, I was just so blown away. And as a writer, I, I, I couldn't admire Cameron Crowe more. He really finds a way to be completely real and authentic and warm and funny. And he goes deep and he'll go to pain, you know, very uh, uh, courageously. And what I love about that scene is John Mahoney hates John Cusack in that right. scene. I mean, you really see it in his eyes. And it's a little scary because, you know, through the whole movie, he's pretending to be charming or he is charming. And, he seems like a warm guy. And then you see there's a real darkness to this person. He's smoking. <laughs> He's yeah. smoking now. He's tough from prison. But you do get like, this is the kind of guy who would rip off elderly people and find a rationalization for it. And he's so furious at Cusack. And then he gives him the letter from his daughter. And instantly, uh, Lloyd is rooting for the letter to make him feel better, even though he was just so mean to him. Right. And they, and they, it's an amazing piece of writing, which is Mahoney's reading the letter really fast. And Cusack's like, no, there's some good stuff coming. There's some good stuff coming. If it's the one that ends with, I'll, no matter what, I'll always love you. 
And then they jump to the end of the letter to see if it's the nicer version of the letter. And he goes, oh, it's just signed with her name. And then Cusack has the great final monologue. Just knowing a version like that exists, knowing that for a minute she felt that and wrote, I still can't help loving you, that's got to be a good thing, right? Got to be a good thing. Yeah. Isn't it great that that exists? You know that's out there. Wow. That is such a... It's just, it's such great writing. and It also reminds me of the writing of James Brooks. These beautiful grace notes and these great, funny, unique lines. Uh, that one is, a, is just a killer. Anything else on that, Chris? No, I love the fact that Lloyd also is like, like he gives him the letter, but Lloyd is like, speed up. I've read this part already. It's like... <laughs> Lloyd, back up, man. It's my daughter. And when he screams at Lloyd, he's like, he's like, I am incarcerated. Right. I do not deserve to lose my daughter over this. Uh, it's, it's just great. And also, it's a very interesting tone for the last three minutes of a movie. I mean, it really goes to true rage. It gets a little out of control like 90 seconds before the movie ends. It, it, yeah. It's like, this is real. He's in jail. This is awful. It's, and then she comes and she can't help but give him a hug and then she gives him the pen, uh, which is a nice, nice moment too. Last, last rewatchable scene. The ending's really great. And it was interesting to watch it with my daughter who didn't understand the, the you can smoke on the airplane beep, like what that even meant. <laughs> but I was like, what's the beep? Why do they have beeps on an airplane? We're like, well, back then you could smoke on an airplane. It's like I, think, no, I think the beep is uh, the... You could take your um, seatbelt off and smoke, right? Wasn't yeah, I think that, in the movie it's still smoking. It's, it's I think the, it says no smoking. So you can take your seatbelt off combo. and smoke. Yeah, yeah. It's, a it's a combo. combo. <laughs> you can get up and smoke. Yeah, because back then, if, if you were in the non-smoking area, right, it was this, still filled with smoke. That was the funniest when they tried to have non-smoking, but it's like uh, one foot from the smoking section. Disgusting. Um, this is a really good ending and kind of like really memorable. You can kind of like if, if you had a picture of that in your office of just them looking up, people yeah. would know right away what it was. It's really good. It's very James Brooksy too. I don't, I don't know if it was his idea or whatever, but it just feels like something that would have happened in his movies. I feel like it's up there. It's like, Obviously, The Graduate has an incredible ending. As far as like movies about romantic relationships, like the Graduate's kind of in its own class and then there's this and um, before sunset, the you're yeah. gonna miss that plane, and I maybe kicking and screaming, and and then th this ending as far as like my favorite endings to like a, a romantic movie like this. This is why we like each other, Chris. I like all of those as well. <laughs> I hope you're talking about the kicking and screaming starring Will Ferrell. Yes, yeah. <laughs> ha! No, we're doing the bomb back one. Um, what do you have for most rewatchable scene? For me? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, let's see, uh, it, it, off the top of my head, you know, the, when they have sex in the car, you know, it, it, it's a really incredible scene. And, and it, there's this weird detail, which is suddenly he just starts shivering afterwards. And you don't even know what to make of it. It's just, it's so powerful for him emotionally that he just starts coming apart at the scenes. And they're so good together. Their acting is so incredible. And it's so sweet that uh, I always think about that, that scene. Uh, I mean, I like probably all the scenes that people wouldn't put on their, their rewatchable list. I love her talking to the guy 
to to, to uh, Joe Don Baker, at the, the guy from the oh, FBI uh, who's Philip uh, Baker yeah. Hall. Yeah, yeah, Philip Baker, Baker Hall. Yeah, Hall. Oh, Joe Don Baker is the guy from Walking Tall. Yeah, um, <laughs> I was like, he's in this. <laughs> but Philip Baker Hall and her, and she's like begging for mercy for her dad after he gets caught stealing money from everyone at the nursing home and him just laying out everything that he did. And, and he's telling her, here's what you should look for. Does he have these types of items? Does he have a lot of things that don't cost too much money? Does he have a lot of rugs? <laughs> I like it. Does he have a lot of rugs? Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> clearly it's all the items when these people die, he somehow uh, steals them. But that was a scene that was great. What's the profile? Well, take a look around the house. Is everything nice, but not too nice? Are there are a lot of uh, rugs, pieces of art, stereo equipment, uh, furniture, a lot of things bought with cash. Does he give a lot of gifts? Do the major items in your house hover around the $9,000 range? You're trying to get me range? to say something. That's why you're telling me all of this. Plus, we got to find out that Philip Baker Hall wasn't always 59 years old. I know. He looked a little young. Yeah, it's weird to see a younger... Run. It's like I was watching The Thing the other day and Wilford Brimley's in it and he's actually a little bit younger than normal Wilford Brimley. Like just a like, hair wow. younger than he was yeah. in the firm. Yeah. You were 39 <laughs> once? That's insane. <laughs> Chris, what's your uh, most rewatchable scene? It's the party. It's the party all the way up to when they, they drop Mike Cameron off because it's a really great depiction of the best night of someone's life. Yeah. All right. What's age the best? How about, let me say one more. Okay. The breakup scene. When she dumps him and she dumps him like 20 seconds after he says, I love you. He thinks it's the moment when they're going to say, I love you. And right. She dumps him and his reaction is, oh, uh, what is that? I feel like a dick. <laughs> right. You must think I'm a dick. No, I don't. I yeah, don't. you do. Boy, we shared the most intimate thing two people can share. You shared it with a dick. No, I didn't. It's so, it's so accurate to what someone would say at that age and it's it's so devastating but that's yeah. a, that's a great scene really really well performed and the whole montage of him depressed talking into his tape recorder in the rain is how i felt for about two years of high school <laughs> i'm still there what's age the best so mentioned the opening credits the don't talk to joe mentioned that one how about john and joan cusack playing siblings yeah in a movie just like gross point blank. Yeah. Chris knows this, Judd, but um, one of my favorite things is when real life siblings play siblings in a movie. I'm always there. I, I'm still pissed that Rudy and Kate Mara haven't been in a movie together. And I just feel like there, there's some extra level of something there that they kind of look alike and you yeah. just know they have a backstory and I always like it. So I that's, don't know. That's why I put Iris and Maude Apatow in a bunch of movies. <laughs> Let yeah, them you brawl. did. They've been in like five of them. Um, <laughs> John Mahoney as the insanely proud dad who finds out about the Reed Fellowship as an insanely proud dad from time to time. I identify that now. It's been a what's age the best for me personally. It's like, oh, I get it. When you're just out of your mind, excited for I could also kids. see you driving around uh, listening to Ricky Don't Lose That Number. Oh, no question. I yeah. just did it yesterday. <laughs> well, it's like those reaction videos where you know, now kids videotape themselves and their families when they go online to see if they got into Yale or something. Right. And then they post online them screaming and flipping out. It, yeah. It's like a version of that. Uh, we mentioned a lot of the what's age the best, but just so weird that Lauren Dean, Pamela Adlon, 
B.B. Newworth, Jeremy Piven, and Eric Stoltz are just randomly in this movie and non-essential roles just sprinkled through. Um, I thought someone said Stone Gossard had a cameo in this movie as a Yeah, cab he's driver. like a cab driver. Yeah, he's in there too. <laughs> and then uh, another What's Age the Best for Me. I like when movies organically say the title during the movie. Yeah. Where he goes, you could say anything to me. And it's just like, oh, cool, the title. There it is. <laughs> Any other uh, What's Age the Best for you guys? Uh, you got to say the music, um, especially Peter Gabriel in your eyes and, and the replacements within your reach, which both get played a couple of times. Isn't and, there a great living color song in there? Yeah. And Fishbone and Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought it was really, you know, it's arrow appropriate, but it's also like within your reach and in your eyes are, are two of like the best love songs of It's of like my, grunge my is going to start in about 15 minutes, but yeah. it hasn't started yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so he makes this movie. It comes out in 89, but they're probably making it in 88. So he misses that music window by like a year. I think if they, even if they make this movie nine months later. It's the college rock movie. It's like yeah, 86, you, 87, yeah. Well, I have, see, I have that in What's Age the Worst too. As much as I like some of the music, I felt like we were, I wanted two more songs from that really weird late 80s era. Like they could have worked a Fugazi song in here, right? <laughs> I don't think Fugazi was selling their songs at that you point. You don't think so? They would have <laughs> no. snuck I don't think they are anymore. I don't think they are now either. Yeah. <laughs> I remember talking to Amy Heckerling once and she was telling me that when they'd made Fast Times at Ridgemont High, one of the fights was she really was trying to use much more hardcore music. And they they just they, they wound up using a lot of just, you know, California, you know, right. what, what the great California rock bands were at that time and she was, you know, looking to you know, some, really, some of the great yeah. punk punk bands in there. Um, more Woods Age the Worst. The uh, MMA equipment, really primitive. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> Lloyd's gloves, they just kind of look like they were, he found them at a prison yard or something. They don't really have all the cool stuff they have now. Um, all right, the boombox scene. So this is the iconic scene from the movie. And even when um, Peter Gabriel played at the Hollywood Bowl, Three, four years ago, Cusack came out holding the boom box. Um, I'm giving it a age the worst, not because I'm down on the scene. It's just, I think it was so much more impactful for whatever reason, the first couple years of this movie. And now it's kind of not as impactful. Like I think if anyone under 30, they're like, what's he holding? Does that what thing is play music? Machine? Is, he, yeah. is he holding a robot? Is that some sort of <laughs> giant robot? What is that? <laughs> Why is he doing that? Why is he outside? It's much more confusing than I think it was in 1989, right? Yeah. The, the, the thing that's funny is like, do you guys ever have this where you remember a scene and it's become so, you know, it's become such a part of pop culture that you kind of forget the context around the scene? Like, I almost forgot that he plays the song and it's not like she comes outside to say hi. You know what I mean? Right. She doesn't even look out the window. Yeah, when she's I just like, oh, again, yeah. Like, she just like turns away. Like, does she know he's out there? But she she literally doesn't even like sneak a peek at the window. Yeah, for some reason, he's in a park. Yes. It's it's a little bit weird because it doesn't look like the outdoor part of her house at all. It looks like he's standing in, in Griffith Park or something. And also, let's not forget that in terms of what ages and what doesn't age... That is still one of the best songs of all time. Yes. You know, if you you, if you put is. on headphones and crank that song up, there's almost nothing that really compares to it. In your eyes, the light, the heat. In your eyes, I am complete. In your eyes, see the doorway.
It's great. And it's the be- it was the best possible use of it too. Which you you see songs get used in movies, but this was really like it's hard. It's almost hard to separate that song from that scene. Oh, the, I think the scene's almost bigger than the movie. Because yeah. if you say to somebody, "Have you seen Say Anything?" They might be like, "Uh," and you're like, "The Boombox movie." Right? Like, oh yeah, sure. And the story you see online is that they were trying to clear the song, and for for some reason, Peter Gabriel thought that they were trying to clear it for the movie Wired about John Belushi. Right? And he said no. Because he thought Say Anything was the Wired movie, like, who I guess was probably also trying to clear I it. I think they sent him the wrong screener. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, there's there's another semi-age the worst of just this whole era, late 80s, early 90s, of guys trying to win girls back by just calling them a hundred times and standing outside their house and all that. It just wouldn't fly anymore in movies. People would be like... Stalking be like, was so in back then. It you really was. Stalk your way into someone's heart. Emilio Estevez and St. Almost Fire. Like she yeah. follows Andy McDowell all the way three hours to the ski lodge. That's like the, the pickup artist is just Downey chasing people up and down the street trying to get yeah. on dates. Yeah. Yeah. It was very unique to that era. Casting what ifs. We mentioned a lot of them. Uh, Cusack beat out Christian Slater as we talked about. Downey turned it down. Um, Jennifer Connelly and Elizabeth Shue both both auditioned for Diane. Pamela Adlon, um, she auditioned for the role of the other friend, which is played by James Brooks's daughter, right? Amy Brooks. Yeah, Julia Roberts also considered for that role. Ended up going to uh, Amy Brooks, and then uh, this is crazy. Before he cast John Mahoney as uh, Diane's daughter, uh, father, Dick Van Dyke expressed interest in the role to the point where he met with Crow and James Brooks to discuss the screenplay. Uh, that would have been unbelievable because because there was a dark side to Dick Van Dyke. Oh, yeah. And, and that he, he didn't... I'm sure that we, if you really went through everything he ever did, there was some incredible TV movie where he played an evil guy or something, but that would have been really interesting to see. I'm glad it didn't happen because I think Mahoney was great and Mahoney's he's great in reality bites. And then finally his victory lap becomes Frazier. But I mean, he had had a really good career and then Frazier happens and it just, sure. How about a diner and Emmys. 10 men? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's it, the Emmys from Frazier were kind of like the uh, cherry and the Sunday for him. Uh, and you mentioned Lawrence Kasdan was set to direct, but dropped out. That would have been weird. I can't imagine him directing this. Um, the one other uh, casting. What if was Dreyfus uh, had read the script for, for, the part that Mahoney did. Right. And wanted to be Lloyd. Yeah. <laughs> Who is this guy that you're dating right now? I what? Take the panties off of the shower rod. <laughs> I'm getting in the I bathtub. Almost an I almost um, have an impression. <laughs> you're on the right podcast. Don't worry. Best, best that guy, AKA the Joey pants award after Joe Panigliano. Best that guy. Uh, Mike Cameron, that guy, the guy in the car at the end of the party that they have to drive around. He's just one of those guys. I know that guy. So this right? is almost like a real life Joey Pants thing where it's like a type of person that you know rather than, oh. No, I'm saying that guy is the, that guy, right? The actor? The, yeah. What about Joe? The guy who played Joe, he's in some other stuff. He's in we tons of to, stuff. Yeah. I feel like he's Lauren Dean, though. I don't think he's a because remember that Billy Bathgate, he was thrown in the uh promo for it. It was like yeah. Dustin Hoffman, blah, blah, blah. And Lauren Dean. It's like, who's Lauren Dean? Um, but yeah, he's he's bounced around. I, I think he's Lauren Dean. Um 
the Vincent Hanna, give me all you got award for uh, overacting. <laughs> Piven is really dials it up in the party scene. I mean, to, to, to astonishing degrees, he scales it back later when he comes back, but in the, uh, in the party scene, that's about as dialed up as it gets. So that would be my pick. Do you guys disagree? I'm going Piven. Give me my firebird key! You must chill! You must chill! I have hidden your keys! Chill! I love you, man. All right, I love you too. Go to sleep. We're full on buzz. <laughs> All right. I, I I was always a fan of the, of the, of the Piven heat uh, in that moment because... Man, when I was in high school, half that party was at Piven level. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, by the way, is is what would you say? It's eighty percent compliment, twenty percent insulting, Chris. For <laughs> this little, award, a little bit, because we like when people dial it up, but I we do. also have to commemorate it. Um, <laughs> and then the Deion Waiters Award for best heat check. So this is somebody who's not in the movie that much, but when they're in, it's a complete heat check. I don't, just FYI, Lily Taylor, not eligible. I think she's Why not? in too many scenes. Too many, too many scenes. scenes. Okay. Yeah, she's in like eight scenes. All right. So really it's down to Piven, Stoltz, and Mike Cameron, I think would be the three. So I actually, I personally, I, I really like Stoltz. What, what is he in the movie for four minutes? And yeah. he's like 22, right? Like he just yeah, hangs out. Old. Yeah, and throws parties. Yeah. And someone uh, was saying that he was a PA on the movie. He wanted to learn more about filmmaking and asked if he could just be the PA. So even though he was a wow, a, a rising star from the movie Mask, uh, he was the guy getting them all coffee and running around doing errands. And then I guess they put him in the, the bird costume. I love Stoltz. And I love that he's this guy in Say Anything. And then in uh, Singles, he's the mime. Right. <laughs> I'll tell you who you guys are forgetting. Who? Joan Cusack's son. Yes. Oh. Yes. Who is a total scene stealer. Every shot of him, he's tracking the action, happy, sad. He's so sweet. He's so funny when the, the, they're saying all the lines to the commercial for the soul music. I, I, I remember when I first saw the movie, I'm like, that is like the definition of how great a tiny kid can be. You know how hard it is to get a, a performance out of a five-year-old? Right. That's a good one. Do you think that kid was really mad that he aged out before Jerry Maguire? You know, yeah. I don't know if it timed out right for him. <laughs> yeah. He was furious. He didn't even get a call. He definitely auditioned and was like, I can play young. I'll play younger. They were like, no, you're 13. This, this is going to work. <laughs> uh, the recasting catch. We recast. This is the next category. We re, re, recast one part of the movie. I, I don't think I would recast anything in this movie. I actually really like everybody in the movie and I don't have any really issues. Chris, you agree? Yeah, this is one of the most perfectly cast movies ever. I think yeah, that I don't, it, I'm good with this cast. Yeah. What about the principal? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then this girl said, hey, world, here I come. <laughs> All right. All right, that's a good, that'll be a good nominee. Um, Half-ass internet research, couple things. The dojo featured in this movie was featured in one other movie, The Karate Kid. Oh, Don yeah. Dragon? Was that Don Dragon? Yeah. Don the Dragon what? What is he? Don the Dragon Wilson. That was who... Yeah. Uh, so Cusack did kickboxing scenes with him. This led to Cusack's uh, three-plus decade obsession with kickboxing. Apparently, he still kickboxes. And he's like, whatever the highest belt is of kickboxers. So 
Don't fuck with John Cusack if you learn anything from this podcast. We all love that big kickboxing sequence in City Hall. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Can you guess? I'll give you either of you $100 if you can guess the exact model of the boombox that Lloyd held over his head. Sanyo. I know it's a Sanyo. Chris? I I was I was gonna say uh, like a Samsung or a Sony, but w- what is it? It's a Toshiba RT SX One. So yeah, that really the perfect year for the boombox. That was like the, when they were really like a little too big. But um, at some point, Chris, we should do the history of boomboxes in eighties movies, going back to uh, Bad Boys with Sean yeah. Penn through Just do the right be- thing. Best yeah. use of a boombox, yeah, all that stuff. Uh, you mentioned Stone Gossard. So Cameron Crowe commissioned the Smithereens to write the movie's theme song. They came up with a girl like you. Cameron Crowe thought the lyrics were too leading and outlined the entire plot too clearly. So he rejected a girl like you, which then still became a Smithereens song. Their biggest hit. That was yeah. the biggest Smithereens song. So I feel like Cameron Crowe gets some credit for that. Uh, I love the Smithereens, by the way. Yeah. For all you people out there, go on iTunes and check out the Smithereens greatest hits. They're kind of, Awesome. From New Jersey, I believe. Apex Mountain, where we decided this was the absolute apex of somebody's career. I'm going to say yes for Ione Sky because this is the best character she ever played, right? I think that's pretty fair to say. John Cusack? I don't even really know what his apex was because it feels like he just keeps resurfacing with major things every time you think maybe, maybe maybe he had the run and then you know, like High Fidelity was in 2000. It's 11 years after this movie. What would you say for him? So part of Apex Mountain is when somebody, not only peak performance or one of their best performances, but also when they had their most juice. When they had their most juice to like coming out of this project, they could get anything done with the next project. Well, no one in show business has juice anymore. Well, it, this is back in the day when there was juice. <laughs> back when there was People juice. People used to have juice. That's a whole different issue. That's the great thing about John Cusack is that, you know, he's in this for the long haul. You know, you're you're right. Like, he has amazing movies in every era. How about that movie that takes place entirely in the in the one room that's based on the Stephen King? Oh yeah, Room. Uh, what was that one called? That movie's good. Fourteen oh eight. Yeah, yeah. that movie's unbelievable. Yeah, it's a fantastic movie. He basically has two peaks. He has this is pretty much one, and then I guess ten years later with the run of. You know, Con Air being John Malkovich and uh, High Fidelity, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. John Mahoney, no. Cam McCrone, no. Um, I don't know about Lauren Dean. Joe definitely was my favorite Lauren Dean character. You like him more than the guy from Any Enemy of the State? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 80s high school movies, I'm going to say no. As much as I love this movie, I don't think this would be the first 80s high school movie that pops to mind. But I, it, I agree with you. Is it Bueller? Yeah, probably. It's either, it's either Bueller or Breakfast Club. I don't think of it as even a part of that. Right. This it's, is, it's, it's an it's, outlier. It's, it's, yeah, it's an outlier because it's so much more sophisticated in a lot of ways. You know, it is. All those movies feel like they're in one category. Some of the John Hughes movies. Bachelor Party. <laughs> right. It almost feels party. like it's like a 1990 movie that just happened to come out a year too early. Uh, I mean, I have to think, you know, say that like when we were working on Freaks and Geeks, I, I, I always thought, let's 
approach this like we're still doing a Larry Sanders show, but just in high school. And in right. a way, that's how I feel about this movie. Like it's about high school. It's about you know first love, but it's made by very uh, you know funny, smart, emotionally complex, sophisticated filmmakers. And so it does feel like it's you know in its own space. This is a tough Apex Mountain question. Seattle movies. We don't see that much of Seattle. We're not really getting a lot of uh, the visual. Yeah, the, the correct feel. answer is no. It's actually Singles is, even though Singles, I think this is probably a better movie. I think Singles is, feels just like such more of a Seattle movie. More of movie Seattle movie. This. I have to admit, for the longest time, I mean, and you never really find out where it's actually set, but I always thought of Seven as a Seattle movie just because it rains so much in that movie. I know it's, it's probably not, but like, yeah, I think Singles is a more Seattle movie, although there are some very famous settings from Say Anything in Seattle. How about Apex Mountain for nursing home fraud movies? Would this be number one for <laughs> yeah. you guys? No, yeah, it's is- the first couple of seasons of Better Call Saul are all about <laughs> nursing home fraud. <laughs> uh, picking nits. This is where we pick nits with a couple things in the movie. I. I mean, we talked about this already, but I maybe two, three minutes less of the nursing home fraud stuff. I would have, I, I think we could have gotten the hint of it. If you're going to cut anything, maybe, maybe you do that. And then. No, expand, expand. More expand. nursing home fraud. <laughs> I want to meet more of the people in the nursing home. I want to know his relationship with them. How does this scam work? I need 20 more minutes. The Godfather 2 version of this movie is we get like midway in and we're like right about, they're about to fall in love. And then there's the flashback to when Mahoney first decides to start scamming old people. (laughs) Uh, um, I I 90% understand why she broke up with Lloyd, but there's 10% that I feel like it was a little abrupt. Like, because it really seemed like she loved him. And then all of a sudden she's like, hey, I'm going to call this off. And it's like, so his reaction is kind of my reaction watching it. And I, I think that's intentional by Cameron Crowe, but it bothers me. I didn't notice this, I think, when I was younger. But I do think that you're supposed to understand that a fair amount of time is passing over the course of the conversations that she's having with her dad. Because I, I don't think I noticed before that her outfits are changing and his outfits are changing and they're in different rooms in the house having that conversation over and over again. So we're really, I think you are supposed to feel like they're getting closer and closer to when she's supposed to leave and... And he's kind of trying to d- disentangle her from this. But yeah, and I think initially when you watch it, you're like, man, that seemed abrupt. Yeah. I think that, you know, the thing that uh, was a big deal back then was the pre-going to college breakup. You know, that's just how it worked. If you met somebody, you know, in, uh, in June, you know, around graduation and you're leaving in September, that, that, that ship's going down. And that was actually the most painful thing for everybody was the people who were head over heels in love and were like, am I going to have a long distance relationship in college? Those were all going to end. So I thought it really was motivated by, motivated by the dad using that against her. Yeah. you know, Clearly, he's got an issue with anyone with her and they're super codependent. But he, he's trying to manipulate her and say, you know, it's not going to work. What are you going to do? Take them to Europe? Like this, don't get in too deep. It's going to be too painful. Uh, but I only thought it was, wasn't abrupt because when girls used to break up with me, it was always abrupt. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw it coming. <laughs> I will say the one thing more painful than the pre-college breakup 
is the three months into college breakup. Yeah, oh, I've had that too. Hey, I've had that too. hey, it's Friday night. Uh, just thought I'd call again. You probably just like, uh, I'm sure you're just like watching a video somewhere down the hall. That's cool. That's cool. I'm, I'm sure it's like a party. Nothing bad's happening, I'm sure. <laughs> Let me know yeah. if you want to talk tomorrow night. I know that's Saturday night, but I don't have anything going on. So, <laughs> no, can we, can we just say as a public service to anyone listening who's not in college yet, but plans on going there? Break up with whoever you're dating before you go to college because you're going to break up with them anyway. Just get it over with. Pull the Band-Aid off. Pull it off right before Labor Day weekend. End it. Although, who knows if anyone's ever going to go to college again. It might be all virtual learning. Yeah, so you're maybe stuck you with whoever with you're dating now. Yeah, maybe stay with your boyfriend. Uh, next category is best quote, which we've talked some of the quotes already, but I'm just going to throw out one more of the the rain on my car is a baptism. The new me, Iceman, Power Lloyd. <laughs> my assault on the world begins now. It's just great. The rain on my car is a baptism. The new me, Iceman, Power Lloyd. My assault on the world begins now. Believe in myself, answer to no one. Also, another good high school, high school yearbook quote. But if you have one favorite quote that we haven't mentioned, uh, mention it now or forever hold your peace. I mean, it's ha- half the movie, but I would probably put um, Corey saying the world is full of guys. Be a man. Don't be a guy. I'm not going back there. I don't even know who you're talking about. Lloyd, why do you have to be like this? Because I'm a guy. I have pride. Oh, you're not a guy. I am. No. No, the world is full of guys. Be a man. Don't be a guy. I also really love that moment in the last scene where uh, Diane says, nobody thinks it'll work, do they? And Lloyd says, you just described every great success story. Nobody thought we'd do this. Nobody really thinks it will work, do they? No. You just described every great success story. Yeah. Uh, I would say that the best quote is... um, I can't really tell if I'm great until I've had a couple of pro fights, but I haven't been knocked out yet. I don't know. I can't figure it all out tonight, sir. I'm going to hang out with your daughter. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> if you're eight and six as a fighter, you know, it's no good. You know, you have to be great, but I can't really tell if I'm great until I've had a couple of pro fights. But I haven't been knocked down yet. I don't know. I can't figure it all out tonight, sir. I'm just going to hang with your daughter. Next category is, could this be remade as a 10-episode Netflix show? My initial answer was just pure revulsion. Don't, But then I started thinking about it. I was like, well, what would be the 2021 say anything as a 10-episode Netflix show? I, I got to admit, I'm not going to lie. I, I did kind of play it out of my head for like five seconds I, and maybe even got like 1% excited. So I, I don't oh, know. Episode three is all about Joe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Plus, wouldn't you spend 10 hours at the gas and sip? Yeah. <laughs> well, here's the thing. They remade High Fidelity as a TV show, and it was really good. Yeah. And I thought that was a terrible idea. And they flipped the character, and they made Zoe Kravitz the Cusack character, and the show is good. So I was thinking, like, if they did this, maybe you flip the characters, and the Ioni Sky character is a guy who has all his shit together, and the Cusack's it's a female Laura character. Dobbler, yeah. Or the entire show is all about the woman who works at the suitcase store. (laughs) (laughs) Your card has been declined. That's episode eight. That's the first scene. I'll still sleep with you, but your card has been declined. Uh, Probably unanswerable questions. I had this down. Judd mentioned it earlier, but 
did Lloyd predict the UFC and did he <laughs> did he start a kickboxing network that didn't work? Like what was his day? Yeah. He was definitely way ahead of his time. What's what is Lloyd's podcast like right now? Oh yeah. Well that was my next question. Is, is Lloyd an MMA blogger, or MMA podcaster, or both? Does Lloyd make like monthly appearances on Rogan? Oh yeah. He's on the Rogan show. Lloyd is like he's the producer, he gets brought in every once in a while. Yeah, I think he's definitely... Lloyd just made $100 million selling his <laughs> podcast to Spotify. <laughs> Congrats, Lloyd. Congrats. It's an MMA. MMA vertical. Uh, how long do you think they stayed together in England? Uh, seven weeks. Seven weeks. I think he got really depressed. He had nothing to do and he got really depressed. Gee, th does he try to get a job? Is he just home all day? What's he doing in London? I think that he had to go back. He had someone asked him to do a fight. He had to go back. Then he said he was going to come back to England after the fight. And he's like, you know what? That fight went pretty well. I'm lining up another fight. And then that's how the podcasting empire starts. And that's when he met Dana White. <laughs> <laughs> I turned down his offer to start the UFC. <laughs> he doesn't want to work for that corporation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think the one thing that Lloyd and Diane have going for them is Lloyd's parents are in Germany and Diane's not going to go back to see her dad. So there's not going to be any, hey, so I'm going to go back for Christmas. Not sure when I'll be back. There's no break on the horizon, but there's yeah. just no way after two months, Diane's not like, can I just go out to the pub with the people from my classes, like without yeah, my? Please don't. Can you not come tonight, Lloyd? Without my boyfriend wearing the class shirt, talking about kickboxing. <laughs> right. I think that's fair. All right. Last He's category. Embarrass her at some parties. There's yes. gonna be some embarrassing parties. Last category. Who won the movie? I'll, I'll throw out. It's obviously. I could see Judd I, not answering this. I could see it being. So it's it's probably for me, Cusack. But I I think there's a out outsider case to be made for Peter Gabriel. Ah, interesting. Just because that song becomes one of the most memorable things about the movie, if not the most. I'm going to say the one woman who speaks in the nursing home. <laughs> she crushes it. She's just like, come down closer, yeah. <laughs> uh, I always have to say Cameron Crowe because it was the launch of his directing career and he just you know, started out with the, with, with the real classic and... For me personally, uh, you know, invented a, a genre. He took young people more seriously. T he took them more seriously than they had been taken before. You know, he didn't make any more movies quite like that. Although, you know, Almost Famous is another young, precocious, uh, you know, different and great person movie. But as someone that was so influenced by it, I have to give it to him because... Uh, it, it, for me, it was like, this is the kind of movie I want to see. This is the kind of movie I want to make. I, I like how seriously he's taking very simple, basic human situations and problems and finding a way to be really funny and, and sweet and, and deep. So I have to give it to him, but also to John Mahoney because uh, he's, he's no longer with us. So we should throw him extra respect. I, my vote goes to Cameron Crowe because I think Cusack has been has had a lot of signature movies, right? And even though I think this is his signature movie, like you could also talk me into three other ones. And if you asked three other people, I don't know what they would say. But apparently these like, three people say 1408. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. It's a good one. Uh, if your home is stuck, you're stuck home right now, go straight to 1408. That's all I got to say. 
I think I think for Crow, I think like, is the only movie you're allowed to make right now. That's <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>, true. <laughs> for uh, for Crow, like he's 32. It launches his career for people like us. You just buy season tickets for him after this, yeah. like whatever he's doing, you're in. And I think it really did influence a lot of people. And and I think, you know, you look at 1989. It's not just him. It's Soderbergh. That's when he's he's doing Sex Lies and videotape. That's when Die Hard is kind of in, totally reinventing what we thought an action movie would be. That's when When Harry Met Sally is doing the rom com in a way that people just now rip off and are still ripping off 30 years later. And they, it's a weirdly influential year for different things that you, nobody would ever say like, oh, 1989. And I don't even remember what the Oscars were that year, but there's some ripples from this year. And so I would give it for, I would give it to him. But I that. think there's a good case for Cusack too. Uh, Judd, your new movie, when does it come out? Uh, June 12th on uh, Video On Demand, The King of Staten Island, starring Pete Davidson, Marissa Tomei, Bill Burr, Steve Buscemi, Maud Apatow, and on and on and on. And Pamela Adlon from Say Anything. Yeah. So we're you're coming on the BS, and we're going to talk about that movie and some other stuff, too, including what yeah. it's like to direct your daughters and interact with them after they turn 15, because I have a lot of questions <laughs> for you on that. Uh, Judd, thanks for coming on. Chris Ryan, thank you for coming on. Thanks for listening to The Rewatchables. All right. Thanks again to Judd Apatow. Thanks to Chris Ryan. Thanks to State Farm. We will be back next week on the Rewatchables with at least one new one. We still have Fletch. We've been holding on to that one. And uh, maybe next week will be the one. We'll see. Can I borrow your towel? Uh, My car just hit a water buffalo. Yeah, you'll be getting a lot of that when we do Fletch, whenever that is. Uh, Enjoy the rest of the week. Stay safe. Stay safe.